right, well, hey, if you have a Bible, join me in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. And while you're turning there, uh, just a quick reminder, we've been praying for the last seven days uh, for rain, something that we've invited you to last Sunday. We've got a few more days left. We'll be wrapping up that kind of 10 for 10 kind of challenge this Wednesday which happens to be our first Wednesday night of prayer and worship. So 7 o'clock, I'd love to see you in this room as we seek the Lord together um, and, and praying and worshiping and honoring Him. Uh, and that's this Wednesday, 7 o'clock. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We're going to read 20 verses. And you can follow along there um, in your place digitally or printed, whatever you got. This is what the word says. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven, everybody say a light. A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer. Somebody say believer. That's different than believers, uh, just in case you were wondering. Now there was a believer uh, in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Uh, But but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He indeed is the Son of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, give us eyes to see. In your name we pray. Amen. I have one question I want us to explore today, and that's simply this question. What does it look like when someone meets the real Jesus? What does someone's life look like when they meet the real Jesus? Now, just by asking that question in that phrasing, some of you are already getting a little uncomfortable. Like, well, everyone knows it's Jesus. There's only one Jesus. There can't be like fake Jesuses. It's only one Jesus. And I would agree, there is only one Jesus. There is only one name by which men can be saved. There is only one Son of God, one King of Kings, one Lord of Lords, one Messiah. There is only one. But I think there are many times people begin familiar about a man but never meet the real Jesus. They meet uh, bad photocopies of him. They, mis- they meet misrepresentations of him. They meet toxic radioactive people who claim to represent him. They, they meet lots of things. They meet overly religious people. They, they, meet, they meet lots of things claiming to represent Jesus, but I'm here to say when people have an encounter with the real Jesus, something shifts and changes. I wonder if there's ever, if we could kind of articulate some of the visual evidence, if we will, when you see someone and be like, hey, they've, they've been changed by someone. Something has begun a transforming work in them. I, I find it interesting that in this passage, Saul was blind. And then when he met the real Jesus, his eyes were opened. He was filled with the Spirit. He was baptized. He Something changed. His eyes were blind, and then he see see because so so often in Saul's letters, see, see, Saul would later have his name changed to Paul, and Paul wrote uh, the majority of the New Testament in which we hold, and many of his letters and writings are so holy and precious for us, and contain va- valuable information for us as we follow Jesus too. And 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 Saul, who who would become Paul, would write these things, and he would often write uh, about the different between those who follow Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus, those in the family of God and those not in the family of God. And he would use language like they were blind, but now they can see. They were in darkness, but then they walked in light. There is this contrast. And you might remember from our study through the Gospel of Matthew that by and large, Jesus is the only one recorded to do miracles where eyes were being opened in the Scriptures. And I think the writers of the Bible did that. It's not that 
the miracle didn't happen. Obviously, Paul had his eyes opened in that same way. But I find it interesting because Jesus is the one who, when we see him clearly, salvation returns and shows up in our life. There's something that Jesus does um, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And many people are living deceived and blind and, like Saul, have scales on their eyes and cannot see But when they meet the real Jesus, something changes. Now, as we ask this question, some of you are are a little bit like me, where your conversion story isn't quite as stark as Saul's. You don't have a long history of a lot of darkness and rebellion and uh, evil depravity and self-indulgences. You might be like me and kind of just like, I don't remember really like the day I got saved. I've just kind of always been in this thing known as the family of God. I've grown up in the church. But if you're like me, somewhere along the way, there were many moments that can mark you like baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit or somebody praying for you, laying their hands on you or moments as you have gone along your way where something like scales have fallen off your eyes and you've begun to see truth in a different way. You began to breathe a little clearer. And you, you might not be able to pinpoint every moment of like, man, it was like this and now I'm like this, but... But as you have gone and been faithful and stayed in this thing and walked the path of following Jesus, it's, it's as if more and more your eyes are open to the understanding of who Jesus is more and more. And that's our story and our testimony. And you, you may be sitting somewhere out there and you might even be here today and you're like, I'm not sure I've even met the real Jesus yet. Man, I'm really glad you're listening in and leaning in and seeing and hearing and learning. I I think we all can find ourselves somewhere in this story. I I think there are three markers that I want to look at today from Saul's life that I think are reflective of our journeys in life in various ways and forms. What does it look like to meet the real Jesus? I I want to share three things with you today. If you're ready to take some notes, I hope you're ready to jot some things down. You can go to our central hub and type in your own notes um, on the sermon notes and email them back to yourself at the end of the day, and you'll have them for your own record. If you want to do that digitally, it's a, a resource open for you. What does it look like to meet the real Jesus? Well, I think there are some things that happen. Number one, I think that there is a new fidelity that occurs. A new fidelity. Now, fidelity isn't a word that like we use in a common day. I, I don't know when the last time you worked the word fidelity into a sentence at casual conversations as you're in the school pickup line or on social media. It's, like, it's not really a word we use really often. Uh, the dictionary defines fidelity like this. It is faithfulness to a person, to a cause, or a belief, don't miss this, demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. It is a belief that is demonstrated in a continuing loyalty and support. Fidelity, it's faithfulness to to a person. Fidelity, you think about the word fidelity, it means a devotion, an allegiance, if you will to a cause and a a person. There is a fidelity that I have to the Carolina Panthers. (laughs) Why? I'm not 100% sure why these days. 
just know that later today I'm going to lend my support through a television device and cheer and yell for which they will return no love probably back to me. I will likely only be disappointed and I'll rebound by watching the Chiefs later tonight and feeling much better about that devotion. You like that faith in the room? Some of you are like, I'm in on that. Jeremy, don't say nothing. You got a Raider shirt on, brother. All sinners are welcome in the house of the Lord. It's... I, have a, I have a devotion to my wife. There, it, it orients some things about my life because of that devotion. Here, here at Faith Church, we have a motto. Five words. We bring faith to life. Some of you are like, I didn't know we had a motto. That's probably because you've never been to growth track. <laughs> Which starts today, and you can hang around and sign up and just show up, if you will, in the growth track room right after this service. Happens first Sunday, second Sunday, and third Sunday. Where, where we do, we talk about these kinds of things. We bring faith to life. There's an element of our understanding and the posture of our heart as a family and as a church where we recognize that when we encounter Jesus, we no longer can separate our beliefs from our actions. They have to show up in our life. That there is a new fidelity that is shaped in us when we encounter and choose to give our lives, when, when we meet the real Jesus, there is this new devotion that grows to where it's not something that we can celebrate and talk about and sing about, but we don't live it out. No, no, no. We bring faith to life. We are an embodied witness of the truth of who Jesus is. We bring it. We are bringers. We bring it. We bring our love and our devotion not just to a set time in the mornings that we call our devotional time. We bring a life of devotion to Jesus because there is a new fidelity given to us. Because we're not just dating Jesus for five minutes every morning and pouring our affections out on him and we say I love you one time to Jesus in a week and hope that that's good for the rest of the week. There is no loving relationship in which that kind of interaction would flourish and thrive. There's a new fidelity that is formed. Friends, I need you to understand that your faith and your fidelity are not our intentions. You might have really great intentions, but intentions aren't the same thing as fidelity. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I, I think it's great to have good intentions. I think it's great to think that like, well, if I do enough good and I, my good deeds are good enough, then I'll make it one day. Well, that's not how eternal life works. That's not how the relationship with God works. And those intentions, while great, I hope you do good things. That's, I would much rather that than evil for sure. But our intentions don't bring about a fidelity. Uh, our, our fidelity is not based on our feelings. Feelings are important. Emotions are great. They, they indicate some things that we believe to be true, but sometimes what we believe to be true might not be true. 
So, so our fidelity isn't based on our intentions. Our fidelity isn't based on our feelings. It's, it's a decision. It's an understanding. It's an act of our will to give our devotion to the real Jesus who has given us all of his devotion and love. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of this, his love goes first. And we respond to that love with a new fidelity when we encounter his love in a new way. This is what it looks like. You know, it's interesting that we here in the West are okay with the idea that we can intellectually acknowledge something to be true, but not live like it's true. Most of the world, for most of time, did not live with that frame of mind. That's just kind of a new Western thing that's been our contribution, unfortunately, to society as a whole, it seems. That's not always how it's been. In fact, let me, let me kind of show you what, what I mean. How many of you, this is kind of all participation, uh, uh, all, all of us can participate. How many of you believe, like you really believe it, you, you believe that eating right, getting good sleep and exercise is the right way to take care of your body and to be healthy? Come on, hands up. Come on, everybody. You know, like, okay, that's, that's the right way. I believe that some of you are like, I'm not playing this game. I've seen this. I ain't. Like right there, yep. Okay, now now watch this. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Come on, everybody participate. You you believe that eating right and good sleep, that's, that's the right way to take care of your body. And stuff. How many of you live that way day in and day out? Yeah, me too. Like, like can I get a 50% score? Like, <clears throat> for those of you that are like, I'm a 50%er, Here, here's the deal. You are 50% non-believer. 51, because it's better than 50. I like it. I love it when they take my message and throw it right back in my face. If you weren't here last week, you missed it. Sorry. You only are getting 48% of that joke. There's a separation. We believe, I mean, intellectually, we're like, yeah, of course, you've got to sleep. You've got to eat right. You've got to have drink lots of water. But like, do we do it? No. According to the biblical understanding, you are an unbeliever. And you're walking in unbelief. In the area of what is healthy for you. Friends, belief like faith in the scripture is not only accepting a truth intellectually, it is living according to that truth. Can can I take it a step further for some of us? I really do believe that every sin we commit at its root is a sin, hear me, of unbelief. And some of you are starting to roll through sin. Why, why, why do we lie? We don't believe telling the truth will respond well in this relationship. It's a sin of unbelief. Why do we go outside the bounds of covenant relationship and marriage to find fulfillment in some things? It's because we don't believe we can be satisfied in that bounds and we want to go outside of those bounds to fulfill something. It's a sin of unbelief. We don't believe that God's way is actually the right way. It's a, it's an, at its root, sin is born from unbelief. It, it comes back to unbelief. Unbelief. Why, why do we not? You talk about you talk about your money. You could talk about how you treat people. You could talk about 
um, how you argue in your argumentative self. You could talk. You walk down the list of why we break relationship with God, known as sin, why we step outside of that. Why? Why? At its core, it's an unbelief issue. It's an unbelief issue. It's, we, we might intellectually agree with something to be correct, but we never begin to apply it and live it, and we never really acknowledge it with the devotion and the way we live our life. There's a separation in those things. Here's my question. When it comes to meeting the real Jesus, is your fidelity to Jesus reorienting your life to where it's fully devoted to him? Or are you fully okay with him being devoted to you and you doing just enough to not fully break apart the relationship? Like, are you... Have you reoriented your life around Jesus? Or are you just trying to integrate some of the Jesus stuff so your life doesn't suck as much? When we meet the real Jesus, there is a new fidelity, a new devotion, a, a reorienting of our entire life to, to where we become devoted to him in a fresh, full, life-giving way as his spirit lives and moves and begins its animating work in us. The, the apostle Paul, in this story known as Saul, encountered the real Jesus and everything about his orientation of, of priority shifted. He rearranged his entire life in a different direction. As they set Jesus as Lord and King in his own heart, there's a new fidelity that shows up in our lives when we meet the real Jesus. Here's number two. There is a new identity that is formed in us when we meet the real Jesus. Jesus doesn't just like change the way you see the world. He changes the way you see yourself in this world. He doesn't just change like, oh, my life, my, my joy, my, my willingness to think kind of other people. He doesn't just change like the external the way of other people. He, he actually be, wants to change the way you view you. He wants you to see his life in your life. He changes the way, and, and your identity, it's, it's comprised of your consistent characteristics, like the things that make you you, and and, and the places that you find yourself going to for value and worth, the things that you hang your value and your worth on begin to shift as you allow him to redefine and give you a new identity in Christ. Shifts that, changes that, reorients that. There's an author uh, by the name of Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book called Source of, Sources of the Self. And recently I read someone summarizing his work, and they kind of summarized it, talking about like how in ancient times, uh, the way we drove and found our identity and our value was kind of uh, an external honor society, like when we sacrificed for the good of the common community and, and our community thrived, we felt a sense of 
honor, and that honor was a big part of how we found our value. But, but over the course of time, and it really accelerated in the Renaissance in the 1600s, where, where things moved from like this external contribution as a sense of value and honor to, to where our value and our honor and, and our identity began to be shifted that, that led us to our 20th century, where now everything is more internal and individual where it's not so much an external reality of discerning and def- defining like value and, and, and achievement. And that way it becomes much more internal where we are now um, affirming ourselves and our internal interpretation of morality and our internal interpretation of what is good for me and our internal interpretation of what our feelings are telling us. And we've turned that so far inward that now morality and nobility are not a standard by which we can measure. They're always a moving target based on what you think and your opinion of it is the highest good that everyone must affirm and accept. And we've churned this internal search for who we are as we looked inward. And the line of value and honor and worth is always moving and always be interpreted, varying by each individual in them own selves. And we found ourselves in a place where as a society, we are always looking inward to discover ourselves. The problem is you didn't make yourself and only a creator can tell you why he made you. And only a creator can reveal who made you. You don't have the power to do that because you didn't make yourself and you don't get to identify yourself in that way. And we live in a place where we no longer have an anchor, but as the people of God, one of the new markers of our identity is that we have a new anchor point for what is good and right. We have a new anchor point for what a standard of morality and nobility is. We have, we have an anchor point of what it looks like to grow in character and to have characteristics that reflect the true us who God created us to be. That anchor point is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that standard isn't you and it isn't me. It is Jesus. And we are all called to be conformed and made and molded into the image of Christ. That we are this progress bar that begins the moment we meet the real Jesus and is a progression of development and growth as we install his operating system into the inner workings of who we are and who he created us to be. Friends, our identity is now in Jesus, and no longer do we see it as a value of our performance and our achievement, but rather all of his. So we see what Jesus did as our achievement. We're not trying to earn something on the outside. We recognize that we receive his identity. It's, a, it's this gift. It's this reality that, that we are in Christ. Colossians talks about us putting on Christ, like, like a, a poncho that you would slide over your head that it just covers all of who you are. We put on Christ. He is our identity. And his identity is holy and blameless. And your identity as someone who has met the real Jesus is holy and blameless. Just read 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. Your identity that he brings as you meet the real Jesus is fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved. Romans 8, 14 through 17, 1 John 3 and 1, if you want to read them later. 
This is your identity in Jesus. He wants to, you get this new identity that is shaped and formed in you as a part of meeting the real Jesus. And, and it is a divine purpose and calling that he gives you. Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 5.1, and 1 Peter 2.9 and verse 15. There's a new identity that is shaped and formed in us. Friends, this is why it's really important to begin to discover who Jesus is and why we invite you to do things like the Fresh Start Pathway, to begin to understand some of the elements of who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him and our new identity. We, we walk this path with him because the reality is this. We are all being formed every day into an identity by what we intake and what we fix our eyes to, what we behold. We said it a few weeks ago, what you behold, you are becoming. You are moving your life in the direction of your strongest thoughts about you, about God, about life, about society, about your family, about your marriage, about your finances. You're moving in the direction. What you behold, you are becoming. Which means that so much of our life is about understanding a reformation into the ways of Jesus, which produces the transformation of the life of Jesus. There's some things we have to undo and unlearn and recognize that. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that we need to start walking in fear of everything in our world. Like, we don't just run away and create this Christian subculture where it's only Christianized things doesn't mean that we boycott everything in our world and we don't go run out and start making our own homestead and start living off the grid because we don't want to be formed and we're just afraid. And it's not, it's not what Jesus intended for us. In fact, let me read you a quote from, from a book by John Tyson and, and, and Susie. Um, and I forget Susie's last name, and that's terrible. Uh, but let me read you an excerpt of this book. It says, Jesus did not intend to take his disciples with their new identities out of the world. Instead, he wanted them to be sent into the world to bring the good news. In order for them to remain in his love and not be swayed by the culture around them, Jesus asked that God would protect them from the evil one, John 17, and sanctify them by the truth. Jesus' words are still true today. We are not meant to leave the modern world behind and escape into Christian enclaves. Instead, we are called to live in the world while not being of the world. We can be people who live in and not of as we are sanctified by the Spirit in truth and protected by God from the evil one. Being sanctified by the Spirit, being defined and shaped by truth is an ongoing process, and our modern world will still assign to us culturally shaped identities based on race and gender, sexuality, personality type, family history, status, and industry. Our culture will seek to send us through its identity formation process, telling us directly and indirectly that we must do certain things in order to be validated and act in a certain way to be accepted. Jesus told his disciples that at times... The world might even label them as outcast and dangerous because they were Christians. And yet, in the midst of these pressures, we can still cling to the truth of God's word. Paul calls this process of clinging to God's truth in the midst of a culture of false identities, putting off and putting on. You were taught, he says in Ephesians 4, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created. Don't miss this. Your new self was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's Ephesians 4, through 24. When the world tells us we are one thing or that we should pursue certain desires and achievements, we take off this false sense of self. And we are to renounce those lies that our sense of self and value is primarily defined by our achievements, others' approval, or other identity markers that we would hold to. After putting this off, we then choose to put on our true identities as beloved, holy children of God. We find our primary sense of self and value in our new God-given identity and consider all other identity markers as far inferior to the first identity. Pastor, what, what what are you trying to say? Here's what I'm trying to say. Is our worth and our value is realized when we embrace Jesus and are embraced by him. Saul, who is getting this new identity, this new awareness of who he was made to be, this new calling as the called out one with an assignment on his life, a purpose now to no longer persecute, but now to proclaim Jesus. A new assignment, a new purpose, a new passion in his life. He was discovering some things that all of the things that he thought was so important in his life, all of the things that shaped his identity and and made him charge so hard in his life were now being altered and changed. Philippians 3 says it like this. I once thought these things were so valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I can gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous through my faith, my allegiance in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, on allegiance, on pistis, on loyalty, on this fidelity that we demonstrate in our lives. There's, there is this growth that happens. And Paul is saying, listen, listen, listen. Everything in my life that I thought was the most important thing, I've learned to discard and set to the side so that I can be embraced by Jesus. Have you been embraced by Jesus? Have you been loved by Jesus? When you meet the real Jesus, there is something that we embrace in him. And it's really hard to give someone a hug when you're holding on to all the things in your life that you find so important. What are the things that you've been holding to as the most important markers of your life, your identity, who you are, what makes you valuable? When you set those aside and say the most valuable thing is that I'm known by Jesus and I'm loved by Jesus, I've been a child and a daughter and a son of King Jesus, ah, things begin to shift in us and change in us. Listen to the words that Peter would write in 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. 
by his divine power, that's the Holy Spirit, God has given us everything that we need for living a godly life, an identity of Christ life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape, don't miss this, the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your fidelity, your faith, your loyalty with a generous provision of moral excellence. Of moral excellence, oh, knowledge of God. And knowledge with some self-control. Oh, and some self-control with some patient endurance. And patient endurance, godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. See, because if you want to be godly, you learn to love the people of God. Don't miss this. And to brotherly affection, love for everyone. There is a primary order in which... Most of us are spending our time trying to love the world in the name of Jesus while ignoring the brothers and sisters in Christ that he said to love first. Brotherly love leads, is the training wheels of properly loving the world. I'm messing with some theology and I really enjoy that every once in a while because it messes with mine because I used to think it was opposite. I used to think the most important thing was loving everyone. But Jesus again and again and the epistles again and again remind us to love the family of God. Why is that important? Here's why that's important. Because of the third thing that happens when you meet the real Jesus is he gives you a new community. He begins to give you a new community. As soon as Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus has Ananias bring Paul to the church community. This shows us the priority Christ places on us being in community together. Being in a relationship with Christ means being face-to-face with other believers. It means we come face-to-face with with other believers other believers. It's part of how God has designed and wired us. Listen to the language that Ananias uses when he he shows up to meet Saul at the house, and his first greeting is, Brother Saul. I can can only imagine the faith that it took in Ananias to call him brother. There's maybe other words that he personally wanted to use. I can imagine the healing that took place in Saul's heart when the very people he had been sent on orders to kill and persecute and put in prison said, Brother Saul. As if all of your history and your past, Saul, are different because all of your former identity markers are washed and gone and you are in Christ. Yeah. 
And because your new identity is in Christ, Paul, we are brothers. Oh, and that new identity is, uh, is seen and known as you live out a new fidelity to Jesus. There's a new community. I love that later in the passage, if you, if you read it later this week, that Barnabas, one of the disciples, like the disciples were really skittish. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's great for you, Ananias. Y'all can be friends, but don't bring him to our gatherings because we ain't ready to have him. Like that public scrutiny and the press, that's going to be a bad deal. Don't bring him. And Barnabas says, come on, Saul. You can leverage the relational equity I have with the family of God. You're my guest. You can come with me. You can come with me. You can come along and learn and follow Jesus. You can come along and be a, a part of the family of God. You can come along into this new community. And, and Barnabas leveraged his relational equity with the disciples and the apostles and the believers and said, come on with us. Come along with us. I could tell you story after story of so many of you sitting in this room who leveraged your relational equity to bring somebody who was scared to walk into this room, but you brought them in anyways. You sat with them. You took them to coffee. You took them to lunch. You said, join my connect group. We're in here. Oh yeah, let's serve together. And you put a lanyard around their neck and said, why don't you open a door and I'll open a door. We're going to do this thing together. You're not going to walk by yourself. You're not going to go at it alone. You are a part of the family of God and we're going to love each other. And we're going to have to work through some stuff because I'm not sure I really trust you yet, Saul. You got any, like, I'm going to pat you down before I give you a hug to make sure there's not like, like I'm, I might do that. But I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to, I'm going to take some steps. Friends, if we are going to be the community of God's people, it will require a radical view of righteousness and not self-righteousness. It will require a radical view of hospitality, making room for people and refusing false assumptions about their character. It will require a radical view of forgiveness, refusing to let the little things bother you. There's a lot of things that bother me about church at times. Spend my entire life in church. I got a list. There's a, a new reality that so many are living in where we're, we've been hurt. And I, I'm not trying to minimize our hurt and our pain by people. Jesus didn't hurt you, people did. But I want you to hear something as strong as the Lord said it to me this week. Jesus takes persecution and negativity towards his church personally. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not the church, not my followers, not my believers. Why are you talking trash about me? Paul, Saul, 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 why are you trying to imprison me? Because for Jesus, he really does recognize that you're his body. And when we meet the real Jesus, we begin to recognize that we are his body. And we might disagree and we might have rifts that we got to work through and we might have disappointments that we got to deal with and it might be there might be time where you find a new expression to work and worship and find healing, and that's, that's true. 
doesn't take away of the fact that Jesus is coming back for his bride and his body. Would you stand with me? Have you met the real Jesus? Can can I encourage you with something? Don't cut off the head of Jesus and just carry around his head and ignore his body. We love Jesus. I love Jesus. I do. I think sometimes we're tempted to like reject his body and just love him. I'm going to carry around his head. I'm going to love his head because he's the head of his body. But there's a body that's meant to be embraced and be embraced by as we discover what it means to meet the real Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Here's my question. Have you met the real Jesus today? Have you met him yet? Meeting him is simply about opening your heart and saying, Jesus, I believe in who you are and I'm choosing to give you my fidelity in return. And you can do that right from your seat just to simply say, Jesus, I want to meet you personally. Jesus, I want to follow you personally. I want to have a new fidelity, a new identity, and I want to be a part of your new community. Jesus, we welcome you. We want to follow you. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Helping us see what it looks like when a person in a life is really beginning to meet you and encountering you. Not encountering rules. Not encountering some benefit package. But meeting you in reality, Jesus. Would you continue to do a transforming work in us? God, where maybe we've stalled out in our progress. Would you, by your spirit, breathe fresh life and cause us to take a step beyond where we're at towards you in a new way? Jesus, we honor you and we worship you. We thank you for it. Everybody say, amen. Hey, let's speak blessing over one another. The family of God, it's on the screen. Ready, read it nice and strong. Ready, go. I really hope today's message was life-giving. As a church, we want to help you encounter God and take another next step in your allegiance to Jesus. I want to ask you to take a step right now, in fact. Would you just share this message with a friend? Maybe post it on your social, text a coworker the link. Just be sure to include something that you learned or how it impacted you personally. When you do that, you get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in someone else. And don't forget to visit our central hub, faithchurchks.org. You'll find other next steps that you can take in your faith, including giving and partnership with us as we help others encounter Jesus like you've encountered him. Hey, we love you. And until we get to hang out again, remember, don't shrink back from your faithful allegiance to King Jesus.